You are now listening to the Charity Church Podcast. Anyway, we're on this series called Be Free. We're studying the book of Galatians. And Paul wrote this letter so that we could understand what true freedom in Christ was all about. And so last week, we kind of, in review, we said that Old Testament salvation, for those who prior to the cross of Jesus Christ, Old Testament salvation came through forward-looking faith. So they looked forward to what God was going to do through the promised seed of Abraham that we'll talk about today in Jesus Christ. They looked forward to that, and they believed ahead for their salvation. New Testament and past, New Testament salvation comes through backward-looking faith. So we look back at what Jesus did on the cross to secure our salvation. So if you look at those three things and you read the book of Galatians, you have the natural question that most people do, and that is, why then the law? Why do we even have Old Testament law? And why is that even included in our Bible? Why don't we just skip ahead to the New Testament and just do the New Testament? And why do we have to understand what Leviticus is all about and Deuteronomy and and Exodus and the, the law there. And so why do we have the law? And Paul talked about that a little bit as we read through chapter three. And basically we said this, that the law restrains, disciplines, and teaches us until the day we are ready to receive our inheritance and begin functioning as a mature and spirit-filled heir of Jesus Christ. I'll put it to you this way. Whenever your children are very, very small, those of us who have raised children, you understand that when they're young, you need to give them the law. You need to basically say, don't do this, and you do that. And you do that until they're able to mature and understand more about why the context of that is all about. And so the law for us simply was there or is there to restrain, discipline, and teach until the day that we are ready to receive our Inheritance. So the problem with that, the problem with a lot of church, and maybe you've been to a church or maybe you left a church, and you would may not have called it this word, but this is a word that we describe, uh, used to describe certain belief systems around laws and rules, and that is legalism. And, and what I've found is that this word has a lot of nuances. It has a lot of meanings for different people. And so I read a lot of different definitions, some from uh, theology books from Bible dictionaries and some just on regular old Google search. Legalism basically is what I believe is and kind of what I have formulated is this. Legalism is conforming outwardly to God's or man's standard for righteous behavior while ignoring God's inward standard for righteousness. Meaning this, that everything is external and there is no internal passion or belief behind it, conviction behind it. It's all about performance. And you go through the routines. You show up to church not wanting to go to church, but you do it only because it's the rule, only because it's the law. And you pray not because you have a relationship with God, it's because that's just what you're supposed to do. It's the law, and you're just going through a checklist making sure you're reading your Bible, you're praying, you're, you're going to church, and you're doing all of these things. You're not beating your children or anything like that, and you're doing it from an outward standpoint, not from an inward standpoint. So there's no inward conviction. It's all outward performance. And so that's what legalism, in a nutshell, is. It basically elevates rules over relationships. 
And that's legalism. That is what legalism, thinking that you can somehow obtain God's favor by keeping a certain set of rules. And so in chapter four of Galatians, if you wanna turn there if you haven't already, Paul gives us some dangers around this idea of legalism or an outward conduct without any kind of inward conviction. And the first one that we find is that legalism enslaves. Legalism enslaves us. And here's how he starts off Galatians chapter four. He says, I mean, and he's referring back to chapter three, and he's kind of going through this whole thing about an heir is and the the guardian and all that. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So he's saying this, that in, in, let's just put it in a, in a schoolhouse, because we talked about the guardian and the taskmaster, the schoolmaster. Let's put it in there. The, the, the owner of everything, the heir to the kingdom, the heir to the throne, sits there next to a slave, a, a, the child of a slave who's in the same uh, room. They're sitting there, and there's no difference. They're both under a guardian. They're both under guardian, even though one of them is an heir. And so he's saying that's what the law does. It, it, it's a guardian until the day that the inheritance comes. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And the elementary principles of the world is basically the ABCs of Christianity, meaning that when you're very young, as we talked about earlier, you need somebody to tell you what to do and what not to do. So when your two-year-old or your 18-month-old is growing and they're exploring the house and they're starting to touch everything, you tell them, don't touch the stove or don't touch the oven or don't pull the iron cord off the, pull the iron off the ironing board. And you say that emphatically, don't do it. But as they get older, you start to explain to them the, the, the uh, cause and effect, the, the, you reap what you sow, and you start to explain to them that when you do something, you will reap a consequence. You touch a, stot, a hot stove or a hot oven, you will burn your hand. But until they get to the place of that, they just need the basics. Tell them not to go out into the street. Tell them not to touch the hot stove. And so that's the elementary principles of the world. And so as a young believer or as somebody who doesn't have the Holy Spirit living in us, we had to have that. You don't do this and you do that in, in order to um, keep from getting into trouble or to keep that. But later on, the Holy Spirit lives in us, as we just sang about. We have the Holy Spirit living in us who guides us and convicts us. And there's an inward, there's an inward aspect to our rule keeping or our obedience to God. So in other words, the law was preparatory, a hard word to pronounce, preparatory. I should have us all say it together, but then you spit on the person in front of you, that would be no fun for anybody. The law was preparatory to show us the nature of God's holiness, the contagious nature of sin, and the necessity of atonement. So the reason we had the law was to show us the nature of God's holiness. So you start reading some of the Old Testament laws, go through the book of Leviticus, the purpose of that and purpose of many of those dietary laws was to show them and to uh, give them a revelation of God's holiness and the contagious nature of sin and the necessity of atonement. So when they would have the annual day of atonement, when they would kill little lambs and goats, and whenever they would uh, have the regular 
confessional and the regular uh, atoning sacrifices, all of that was a foreshadowing of what Christ was going to do on the cross in ultimate satisfaction for God's justice that needed to be satisfied. And so all of that was a foreshadowing of that. So the law was preparatory. It was preparing us. It was showing those Old Testament believers what was to come. And then Paul goes on, he says, but when the fullness of time came or when the exact right moment in history, and there's a whole message around that phrase like that uh, right there about why was the timing of Jesus' birth so perfect? And there's a lot to that. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as his son. So once all the prep work was done, then God sent his son to fulfill and satisfy the law. And he did that perfectly. And then he died. He died that perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice, and he was the ultimate sacrifice. That's why there's no more sacrifices today in Israel. First of all, there's no temple to do the sacrifice, sacrifices, but Jesus satisfied all of that. So all of that was done, and then he introduces this idea of adoptions. He goes on, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so he's, he introduces this idea of adoption. And I know a lot of adoptive parents. Some of you are adoptive parents. And one of the things that those adoptive parents or you adoptive parents want your child to know and believe, you want them to know, to feel, and believe that they are loved and accepted by you. You want them to feel that unconditionally. You want them to feel that as much as your biological child feels that. The adoptive parent has that desire for their child to feel it, to know it, and to believe that they are loved unconditionally. And that's what God wants for you and for me. So he puts the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, a term of endearment toward your father. So he says, you are no longer a slave, but now you're a son. Now you're adopted by God into his family. And if you are a son, then you're an heir through God. You are an heir to the kingdom and all that comes with being a child of the God of the universe. And when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, who was God's biological son, he was his son by birth, but now we are adopted into that same family and we are heirs along with Christ. So God puts his spirit God puts his spirit inside us so now we can know, now we can feel, and now we can believe that we belong to God. And we go back to the truth of that. When life comes at us and we just don't feel like we belong, when we feel like we have strayed too far, we can be like that prodigal son who understood that the best place for him to be was back in the presence of his father. And you can run back to him knowing that you are loved that you are adored, and that you have been set free from all of that. So he goes on. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. And that is a beautiful thing that Paul says there. Not only do you know God, but you are known by God. I mean, have you ever known somebody from a distance? 
and then you, they, you walk up and they know you by name. That is such an awesome feeling. And to be known by God is such a precious thing for those of us who are his children. He says, so then, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? He said, why would you ever go back to those elementary principles? Why would you, as a mature, grown adult, ever wanna go back to kindergarten? I wouldn't wanna do that, right? Neither would you. I wouldn't wanna be sitting in school as an adult. It just doesn't make sense. I've matured past that. And as parents, that's our goal for our kids. We want them to mature into adulthood so that they just understand life and you don't have to set the rules for them like you used to. And so he's saying, why would you ever turn back and go back to the ABCs of the principles of the world and be enslaved to that? Why go re-enroll in kindergarten, so to speak? He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. You've gone through a lot, and I'm afraid that I have labored in vain over you. So this idea of legalism, the first thing I want you to understand, when you try to appease God by rules, it enslaves you. It is a relationship that God wants to have with you. He wants your obedience to come out of a heart of love and not out of a heart of bondage and slavery. The next thing that it does is legalism also divides. Legalism divides. It divides churches. It divides people. It divides family. It divides relationships. And so in, in the next several verses, this is what Paul is talking about. He says, brothers, I entreat you or I beg you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a body, bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Now, Paul, he's, he's appealing to a relationship that they've had. He said, listen, you know that for so long, we have had an ongoing relationship. As a matter of fact, you had a loving relationship toward me, and you helped me with this bodily ailment that I've been dealing with. There's a lot of speculation around what Paul's bodily ailment was. He never tells us for sure. Some believe that, that Paul had contracted malaria and that he was dealing with the effects of malaria over a long course of time. Some believe that Paul suffered from epilepsy. And in, in there's a next part of this verse, he kind of alludes to some, something about that. Um, but most people, and I believe that it was some kind of a disease of the eye, that he had some kind of visual impairment. He goes on, he says, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. So this scorn or despise means that, or what some people speculate is that he had epilepsy, and epilepsy was viewed as kind of a, a demonic oppression or even possession, and so that might have been a reference to that, but I don't believe that was what it was. He said, but receive me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. He says, what, what then has become of your blessedness? What is, what's happened to your kindness toward me? What happened? You're no longer, something has come between our relationship. Something has divided us relationally. And it's legalism, as we'll see here in just a moment. He says, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. This is why I believe Paul has suffered from some kind of a, a visual impairment. In some of his other writings, he said, see what large letters I have used to write to you. 
probably because he couldn't see well, and that when he would write his own letters, they would be with large letters because um, he couldn't see and he wouldn't have an ascribe to it. So Paul was sick and he experienced this kindness from the Galatian believers. And all of a sudden he says, what has now happened to that blessedness? What has now happened to that kindness that you formerly showed to me? Something has come between us. He says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Have you ever become someone's enemy by telling them the truth? That's a hard place to be because you know you feel the, the, the gravity of needing to share truth with somebody, but you know you risk the relationship with that person. And that's what Paul had done. He had imparted truth to them, and now he says, because, because I've imparted truth, are you now telling me that you are my enemy? And when we allow legalism, when we allow untruths to get into the church, it causes disunity because bad doctrine or bad teaching or bad theology causes disunity in the church. And that's what Paul constantly was fighting about. Legalism is bad doctrine. And that is one of the worst things for the church is to be divided and to be disunified. So he goes on and he says, they make much of you, these, these Judaizers or these people who are uh, trying to force the, the law on you. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. He's saying, they're trying to manipulate you. They make much of you. They, they talk a good talk. They, they build you up, but their purpose is not pure. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. They wanna build you up so you'll build them up. And they've got uh, ulterior motives to that. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you. So we like to be made much of, but only when the purpose is right. So my, my children, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So Paul was wrestling and he was wanting these believers, these Galatian believers to, to not fall back victim to what these Judaizers were trying to get them to hold on to. He was wanting them to be free. He says, and I love you as a father loves a child. I am, I am in anguish for you. I want you to be delivered from that. He says, I wish, I wish that I could be present with you now and change my tone. Because we know that in a letter or in a text message, tone gets lost, right? And that's what he's saying. He said, I'm writing you this letter and the tone is being lost in the letter. So I wish that I could be present with you, for I am perplexed about you. I want you to see my face. I want you to hear the passion in my voice. I want you to know the love that I have for you. And he could not send an emoji to let them know what the tone was. That's why the emoji was invented for your text messages, because you and I were sending text messages to people and we're going, I hope they understand this with the right tone. And now you send it, and if you're like me, you look at it and you go, I think that's that's not really how they mean that. You, you second guess it. So it's always to have a face to better to have a face to face conversation. The older generation probably understands that. Younger generation like no, it's not. It's a lot better to text. But Paul said it was better to be face to face because it's hard to interpret tone in the letter. And so he loved them so much he wanted them to get the gist of the heart behind this message that this legalism that they were allowing to get in the church, this imposing of rules upon someone else was coming between their relationship. 
And that's what happens in so many people's relationships. Somebody takes their rules and their, their standard. Uh, when you're raising kids, it's like somebody else, the other relative that seems to have all the perfect children said that you were too lenient on your kids. You know, you've had those conversations at Thanksgiving. That's why you don't like Thanksgiving because everybody's comparing. And it's like they're imposing their rules on you and it comes between you. It, it divides and that's what legalism does. But the last thing that legalism does is legalism condemns and should be strongly rejected because of that. We're gonna zip through these verses, okay? Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you even do you not listen to the law? Listen to what the law is saying to you. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. A little backstory here. Abraham was the one who God came to him and said, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed, meaning that he was going to be the father Abraham who would have many sons, as we talked about last week, who would ultimately be the um, father of father of father of Jesus Christ, the, the promised seed, ultimately. So God had promised Abraham and his wife, Sarah, that they would have a child, but that did not happen immediately, and Abraham got impatient. And so his wife, Sarah, wanted him to have a son, an heir, so they agreed that he would have a sexual relationship with their servant, Hagar. And so Abraham went in, had a relationship with Hagar. She did, in fact, conceive a child. He was the child of the slave woman. His name was Ishmael. Then Abraham ended up having a child by Sarah, whose name was Isaac the son of promise versus the son of the slave woman, okay? That's what he's talking about here. So he goes on. He says, but the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. So these two things transpire. One was out of the flesh trying to do it your way and trying to make things happen by, uh, through fleshly means. The other one was through promise, just wait on God. Wait on God and things will happen in his time and in his way. Now, he says, this may be interpreted allegorically. And I love that Paul told us that. He says, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai or where the law was given. So this one is the, the woman of the law or the, the, uh, the, the slave woman bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, he introduces this idea of allegory. And I just wanna kind of give you just a little bit of an interpretation, understanding of scripture, okay? There are two ways to view many passages, or all passages of Scripture, but specifically in the Old Testament. One of those is through typology. Now, typology is this. It's stories of the Old Testament that generally shape the patterns fulfilled in Christ. So an example of typology would be the story of Noah's Ark. If you're familiar with that story over in the, in the book of Genesis, it's the story of God bringing judgment on the world because how, of how great the sin was. And he told Noah to build an ark and everybody who got into the ark was saved from God's judgment, okay? The ark was a type, it was a typology of Christ. So everybody who is in Christ is saved from God's final judgment and wrath. And so the ark was typology. The other thing and this is where it's dangerous, is allegory. Allegory applies a secondary spiritual meaning to a text 
that would not occur to the casual reader. So it's like you just reading something and you're going, oh, this must mean this. And it really has nothing to do with the words, the grammar, or the context in which that was written. A couple of examples of that. Let's just say you're reading about the story of the, the first uh, miracle that Jesus ever performed. And that was that he turned water into wine. And in that story, they were at a wedding and they ran out of wine. And they came to Jesus and said, we're out of wine. Mary, his mother, said, uh, make us some more. And so he turns water into wine. Well, that wine was better than the first wine. And everybody questioned that. Most people bring the, the uh, good wine out, and when everybody's drunk, they bring out the bad wine. Why did you do it just the opposite? And so an allegorical interpretation of that would go, God is saving his best for you. And we would preach that. And God, and we go, you've had a bad life, but God's saving his best for you. That is not what that text is saying. If you go back into the Old Testament and you would look at the story of David and Goliath, if you insert yourself into that story and say that you're David and that cancer and disease and enemies of you are all Goliath and God is gonna defeat them, that's allegory and that is not what that is saying. That is not what the scripture is teaching in that. So you have to be careful because if you start reading in secondary meanings, that were not intended, then you're preaching allegory or teaching allegory or reading allegory into it, and that is heretical, so to speak, or it is false teaching, and a lot of preachers preach allegory. And it is a dangerous place to go because you can make scripture say whatever you want it to say. So allegory is not, as, is not good as an argument, but it's not a bad illustration. If I could find a text to support something scripturally and I can go in the Old Testament and find that reference, a story that would, that would basically shed light on or illuminate or illustrate that New Testament principle, that's okay. But don't make your theological case with allegory because it will not stand. It will not stand the test of life. But when it's true to scripture, it will withstand it. So we've gotta always be careful that we interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament and not come up with some hidden meaning. So anytime you're reading the Old Testament, you always, always, always look for, the, you look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. The New Testament basically tells us what the Old Testament means, not the other way around. And that's where we get into trouble when we mix those two. They stand alone, but they go together. But we always look for types of Christ in the Old Testament because everything was a foreshadowing and pointing to the redemptive plan of salvation. So now, Mount, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. That's reference to uh, Sarah. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, so we're children of the promise. If we're in Christ, we're children of the promise. You brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. So true heirs of Abraham are those of us who have put our faith and our trust in the promised seed of Abraham. The only way for you to become a child of God is to put your faith and trust in Jesus who was the promised seed of Abraham. But he finishes up and he says this, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. If you follow Eastern culture, 
The child of the promise is Isaac. That's the Jewish nation. The child of Ishmael, or the, the, the child of Hagar is Ishmael, and that is the child of the law, and that is those who are in opposition, or the Arabs that are in opposition to the Jews. Not that that's salvific in its, in its interpretation. It's just telling you that the, those who are in the promise have been persecuted by those who are of the flesh. And it's still that way. This thing is still ringing true in, in our world today because these two lines, Isaac and Ishmael, were always at odds at one, with one another. The child of the promise, the child of the law. And so it's even that way to now. So those who work to receive the inheritance will resent those who receive it by faith. So those who are in a religious system that believes you gain God's favor by keeping a set of rules, they will always be opposed to and look down on and persecute those who believe, like we do, that it only comes by grace through faith alone and not of works, lest any man should boast. So what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we are children of the free woman. Bottom line, what you believe will determine to a great extent how you behave. And so if you believe that you're a child of God, you will behave from that. But if you believe that you have to appease God and to gain his approval by keeping law, then you will be lost and you will not behave properly because it'll all be about doing and not about being. Jesus, here's how he addressed it. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the religious gurus of the day. If anybody knew how to have a righteous life by performance, these guys did. And Jesus comes along and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most righteous people you would know, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the reason is, is because their righteousness, so to speak, was based upon their ability to keep the law, which they could not do. Jesus comes along and says, you will never keep the law. You'll always be disobedient to the law to some extent. And so the only way for your righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees is for the righteousness of Christ to be imputed to you so that God, Christ's righteousness is counted to you as righteousness because you received him as your Lord and Savior. That's the only way your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So heaven awaits those who have put on the righteousness of Christ by placing their faith and their trust in him alone for their salvation. Righteousness does not come by any other way. Praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord. And if you have never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never put on his righteousness, you've been trying to do it through your works, you've been trying to perform up to a standard, today I'm just gonna tell you, if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus covers you. You are in Christ spiritually, and your salvation is secure in him but you've got to trust him. You've got to believe in him. 
So if you've never done it today, we would love to give you that opportunity. We're gonna sing a song. You can meet us down here at the front or you can meet us back in the guest VIP room or you can chat with us online if you're watching there. But let's all stand together. Father, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that we don't have to live in legalism, that God, we can live free of the bondage that comes along with that. And so today I pray that if there is somebody here who's never put their faith and their trust in you for their salvation, they've been trying to perform their way to you. I pray that today would be the day that they would trust you and believe in you. In Christ's name we pray.